everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 155 with S. Franco, who is a bilingual Peruvian-American theater artist and interrupter of the status quo working in the Seattle area. We chat about their acting and directing work, as well as how to make rooms more inclusive, encouraging vulnerability, and prioritizing compassion in rehearsal processes. I hope you enjoy. And hey, if you like this podcast, there's a good chance you'll enjoy listening to the other podcast distributed by American Theatre Magazine, The Subtext. So check that out on the listen page at americantheater.org. And now, without further ado, please enjoy episode 155 with S. Franco. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast multi-hyphenate theater artist and amazing human S. Franco. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Witzik. So for folks who don't know of your awesomeness, if you were at a theater mixer opening night and you're being introduced to someone, how do you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Franco. My pronouns are they, them. I'm an actor and a director. Um, I'm very passionate about classical work and bringing it to modern audiences. Um, and I just fucking love acting. So, yeah. <laughs> Great introduction. As I was joking before we started recording, I think the last time we saw each other in person, we were married uh, in a stage reading called Beautiful Moon. And yeah. some of those pictures there's this picture of me dipping you and it's like one of my favorite production photos ever in the world I'm so thrilled to see your star ascend in terms of taking on bigger projects in the time since we've been in the same room together I want to start off our conversation with wolf play Mm. I was just overwhelmed by how many people specifically called out your performance in this production that got such high praise. Let's start there. Tell me about Ash. Tell me about the process. Pictures of you boxing were gave me life. <laughs> Tell me things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I loved working on Wolf Play. It really did feel like a once in a lifetime sort of role to play as an actor. I, uh, as a person, um, am sort of it's not that I'm newly out as non-binary and trans, but, uh, you know, I think in our industry, it can be hard as a trans performer to kind of find our place or to be ready to take the leap to be like, this is who I am. Um, and it's maybe more complex than some scripts out there, you know, imagine for people. Um, so to play Ash, who was this fucking awesome role to just be uh, in this place of power um, and, you know, like Ash is great and complicated. Ash is, you know, about is approaching their um, boxing, professional boxing debut. Uh, they've been training for it for five years. They're going to fight a male boxer. It's a big deal. And they're an extremely hard worker. Um, and they're also a person of a uh, few words. So the things that they say, you know, can be kind of blunt. Um, and also uh, they have a huge heart. And I think that part that's, you know, 
like I had to approach this person, right. Um, seeing them with all the love and compassion. Um, and they, they're very guarded. Um, and also like just fucking big dick energy, you know, like so powerful. Um, obviously like a sexy, strong athlete and they have to learn to soften to take care of this child who's in their home and to connect with them. And, you know, the, the play Rosa Josie, the director talked about how it's so much about finding your pack. And there's a really unexpected moment between Ash and Wolf, Genu, um, where there is a moment of recognition where Ash can see beyond the puppet that everyone else is seeing into the child and that they are both wolves, you know, they're part of the same pack and, and learning how to be okay with that, you know, the cracking open of this, this uh, wall that's outside of them. Um, so it was a really beautiful emotional arc as an actor to inhabit. And also like as myself, it was such a gift to get to play this like masculine um, energy on stage uh, where, you know, often I have not gotten to play that, um, you know, and to, be fully myself, to grow out my facial hair, to be who I am, and that it was perfect for the role um, was a real beautiful gift as, um, you know, a gender nonconforming actor. So I have a really special place in my heart for Ash and for this play it meant a lot. Absolutely. I want to pull on this thread a little bit. You talked a little bit about growing out the facial hair, mm-hmm. let's dig into the external, like the external and how that informs the internal can you talk more about the boxing training? I know that you said you were in boxing training two months. Yes, yes. So the costuming, like how did these external elements come together to empower the characterization? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, so I was training with this brilliant boxer, this woman, Laura Wright. Shout out to Laura. Um, truly a, an amazing person for me to work with. Um, and I have a movement background, so like I can move. Right. But yeah, it's totally different. Um, learning how to have the technique, right. To really pull off looking like a professional boxer. And there's a boxing match, um, in the show where I'm fighting, you know, a non-existent person there, Tommy Tavares, but right. Like really, it was so important to me to really, uh, embody that, um, that technique, right. And that feeling. Um, and Laura did such an amazing job of making me stronger, of training me, of giving me, you know, the basics and really giving me this launching pad. Helen Roundhill was also the choreographer. So they worked together to make this awesome choreography for me, uh, to look, to look so badass, right. I'm like, I'm fighting the air, but I look so good. And, um, it was so fun. That was like, probably my favorite scene to perform actually it was the boxing scene even though it was like you know fucking five minutes of cardio or whatever on stage but um so fun and that that was a huge part right jump roping every day exercising all the time you know feeling what it felt like to be that exhausted in my body and have you know the arm definition and all of that stuff like really helped me um, also embody Ash, right. In this way, I felt so confident. It was also the first time really that I was like walking around with my facial hair, but I was like, not scared when people were rude to me on the street, you know, I was like, actually I could defend myself if I needed to, which was also a beautiful gift of this show, right. Of finding that power of like, I'm not going to make myself small. I refuse to do that. 
And with costuming, Chris Turgey was the costume designer and is um, on staff at ACT and was incredible. Her um, thoughtfulness around the process, you know, I had never worn a binder before and we, you know, discussed, right, different types of binders, different, you know, like uh, shapes, right? Uh, all of these different things um, that are so intimate and delicate um, and were quite emotional for me. And they just handled it with such grace and compassion. And it is like a huge part of why I, I think also experienced a personal arc of joy and success on that show because I felt so held by Chris and their team. Um and I remember before we took the promotional photos, a lot of us were nervous. I was really nervous. I was like, whoa, my face with my facial hair is going to be on a poster or online, you know? And it was really scary for me. And, you know, Chris was right there in my dressing room, like giving me the pep talk, making me feel good. And right, like two weeks later or whatever, the process was so short. It was like three weeks. It was crazy. Um on opening night, like I felt so good being seen. And that is in huge part. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Jerby. Yeah. Would you say you reached gender euphoria? In oh, the- hell yes, I did. Oh man, I did. Um, and yeah, it felt so good. It, and it still feels good. I really feel like Ash um, just opened up so much for me personally. I just got this image that I felt I needed to share, like, of you is, like, you have this, like, Marlon Brando energy about you, this <laughs> sort of, and I mean that as, like, a high compliment, this, there is this brooding masculine about you in, like, the most wonderful way, and I'm just so thrilled that you had the opportunity to embody that and share that with other folks in the role. I don't know if you've gotten Brando. I don't know if you've gotten that comparison. I cannot say that I have. And uh, it's it's all downhill from here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You're talking a little bit about the audience reception specifically of the white male character in this piece. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share some of those insights again, because I am always struck by a quote-unquote villain that we feel empathy for right that is not just black and white this person is evil has nothing redeemable we will write them off and how that can center discomfort in the audience right yeah absolutely and first I want to speak to like before I get into that I think it's important to talk about how wonderful the room was in terms of the other actors Rosa our stage management team like um Rosa just built a room of such uh, compassionate, safe people, right? Because, you know, there was a possibility that the person playing Peter, right, would not be a safe white man. That happens, right? And it's not like, you know, it, it doesn't take much, right? It's not that this person would have been, could have been an evil villain or something, but Aaron Blakely uh, was a joy to work with. And also like, I felt quite safe um, working with him. Now we're friends and, you know, like punching him in the face and calling me the D word, right? Like it really required a lot of trust. Um, So that also was um, a great thing to experience um, that it did feel really safe, even through the conflict that it could be held in a really realistic way because of the trust. And Peter, yeah, I mean, like he's coming in and he's 
polite. He seems to have it together, all this stuff, but he's sold his child on the internet. Right. And yes, like a lot of it, he is not having great home life with his wife, Katie. It's implied that she's has really intense postpartum. They've just had a baby. They didn't expect that they could. So they had adopted this child and now there's all of this difficulty and, you know, he, he's really trying to survive and do the best thing that he can. Um, it's not excusable. It's really, really cruel. Right. Um, and I think that he spends most of the play just swimming in how fucked up that was, right. um, which I think fuels a lot of his motivation and, and actions. But uh, yeah, I think like it's important for audiences to see villains that aren't just, you know, cookie cutter. So that could never be me. Right. It's like, we're seeing someone who, you know, I disagree with his politics. Right. Um, for many reasons. Um, but it's like, it's, it's, we're also seeing a person who is treading water and trying to survive and makes a horrible decision. And then is trying to do the, the thing that he thinks is best for the child, which I completely disagree with. It's not correct. Right. But yeah, I think it's important for audiences to see a villain who is more like them than they want to see. Um, and I think that it's beneficial, right? So yeah, but I'm I'm like, dude, dude kid sells his kid on the internet. How likable is this guy? <laughs> like he's not that likable. But I guess it's a low bar, you know. So <laughs> that's fair. Do we feel like we've we've fully shared what we want to share about wolf play because i would love to move on to your directing accomplishments mm -hmm. um yeah 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 yeah. i i it yeah i think so mm -hmm. <laughs> i could talk about wolf play ad nauseum forever so it could be an entire podcast on its own i'm sure yeah truly truly let's talk about our dear dead drug lord for folks who aren't familiar with the play can you give them an overview because it is a wild yeah. ride yeah, absolutely. So Our Dear Dead Drug Lord was written by Alexis Shear. And it's about four teenage girls who are part of the Dead Leaders Club. Um, and it takes place in Miami in 2008 during the presidential election, like September through December. And, uh, you know, it's there's so much in it, right? They're like really on the cusp of becoming adults. They're seniors in high school. Most of them, they're figuring out where they want to go. Everything is so high stakes, right? And what I love so much about this show is that um, we see, we get to see the complexity of young women. We get to see the tenderness, the joy, the silliness, and also the grief, the anger, the rage, this, um, you know, this, desire to control what they can because so much has been taken from all of them. They're all experiencing grief of, of one sort or the other. And yeah, it's also beautiful in terms of uh, representation. We see a Cuban actress, we see a, a Colombian actress, we see Afro-Latina Haitian actress, there's a Jewish actress. Like it's also uh, reflects the world as it is in Miami. Um, so that was also really rad to get to um, direct these roles of these extremely smart, at times vicious young women. Absolutely. You talked, when we were talking about Wolf, you talked about the importance of a safe room, of creating that space 
when you are envisioning a project as a director, if you don't mind sharing, what's part of your process in terms of creating your room? What 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 is that special sauce that goes into it for you? <laughs> yeah, um, it is really important to me to take care of everyone, right? And I think in many rooms, there's such a focus on the talent, right? I've uh, got to keep the talent happy, which like, like, yes, obviously. And I think that, you know, in the last few years, especially post-quarantine, post-George Floyd revolution, there has been so much more to try to make the rehearsal room and the theater space more equitable and safe for everyone. And in my room, uh, it's really important to me, right? We're doing check-ins all the time, right? Um, making sure that people have the tools that they need. We you know, have intimacy directors, we have moving choreographers. I also on our Dear Dead Drug Lords specifically um, worked with my friend Zoe Shields, who does mental health support for theatrical production specifically. So Zoe was, you know, giving the cast a certain set of tools, a packet of information was also offering them like free sessions for them to see you know, to have support, whether it was about the play, you know, about their personal lives, whatever, it was all confidential. Um, and so just trying to create a room that felt safe in that way. We also had an incredible dramaturg, Carlos de Trujillo, who um, was Cuban, who practices the Lukumi religion. So it was very important for us to portray that in a way that was not like heightened or stereotypical, right? Um, offensive, essentially. And so just like, I just love getting as many other people in the room as I can, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I'm like, it's not just me. I don't owe it. Like, I'm a human being. I'm going to fuck up. I have blind spots, right? And that's that's what it is. But if I can trust my team to hold me accountable, to have my back, to support me, like, that's what's cool about directing, right? Is, is getting to dream about how are we going to make a room where the actors are not only safe, but it actually, like, you know, magnifies their artistic faculties where they can reach something greater, break a glass ceiling in their mind and their experience of, of their art and who they are. Um, and that goes for designers too, right? Like I want everyone to feel that they can ask for the things that they need, right? That we can be realistic about expectations, right? Um, what our access needs are, and also that we can dream something beautiful together because I feel very strongly that we can create um, a culture of theater that that supports the artist as a person and gives them everything they need and is generous and kind. And also the, where we are held accountable and we are creating excellent work. I think that those things exist together. I don't think that accessibility is about, you know, not being honest with someone about the impact their actions have on other people because they're having a bad day, right? I think we can extend generosity and compassion to that person while also being like, great, we're still going to do the best we can, right? We're still going to make an excellent piece of theater. And that for me is what's hard, right? It's like, and that has been hard for me as a director to really be on that journey of, yeah, of like, I think when I was younger, I was like, cared so much about the actors and other people that I, it was hard for me sometimes to hold people accountable, Whereas now that I'm a little bit older, I have a, a little bit more experience and I know how to do that in a way that is true for me, right? I'm not like putting on the coat of performing some other director that I've seen, right? So yeah, that's uh, I think what I'm learning about. Um, and I think it's an experiment every fucking time with Zik, like, right? Because a person is a different variable in the equation. So yeah, that's, 
That's uh <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that and being vulnerable because I think too many times we expect directors to be this impenetrable fortress who knows everything and is the smartest person in the world in the room, excuse me. But, <laughs> well, depending on the director. Um, but, you know, I think the best rooms have vulnerability and tenderness and I love what you were saying. I resonate with it so deeply that balance between empowerment and accountability because boy, howdy, nothing takes the air for me. Nothing takes the air out of the room. than some harm being done, it not being acknowledged in any way and everyone yeah. just being expected to keep their heads down and moving on because I don't think that's, I think it happens all too often and it's not realistic to have that be sustainable like we're yeah. all human beings yes we're collaborating on something but in the best case scenario we're allowed to bring our full humanity but in a way where we are acutely aware of how our actions affect other people and yeah I think sometimes we're just not folks just sort of skirt away from challenging conversations and moments yeah. like that because it's like, oh crap, something bad happened and folks go into crisis mode. But I think when you have, when you assemble a room where you are respecting everyone and fo feel folks feel like they can share their voices without fear of retribution, just really wonderful, juicy things happen. Um, yeah. And that is a great transition into, there's a there's this very charged moment in this play right and you chose yes. to portray it in a very different way than yes. folks may have seen it before yeah. <laughs> i would love to hear about the process and especially we were talking before about like embodying dissociation on stage like is such a wonderful juicy thing for me and something i would like to see more of personally but i am going to yeah. stop talking so that we <laughs> can hear your brilliance now um well, yeah, so in the climax of the play, there's a very violent moment of assault between the friends. Uh, I, I won't go into too much detail because spoiler alert, I guess, for people who haven't seen the play, but uh, there is assault, there is violence uh, against women. And I wanted to really handle that the right way, you know? And I have lots of ideas and strong opinions about, right, how we handle violence on stage in the rehearsal room, what we do, right? So like that rehearsal, we had everyone on the team. Simone Sands, our choreographer, Chessa Betancourt, our intimacy director, Zoe Shields, our mental health coach, me, you know, in addition to the actors and the stage managers in the room. Um, and it was really important that we discussed it all as a group and that we were all consenting to the way that we were telling the story. And I think we must have tried it like seven different ways, staging it seven different ways to try to figure out like, what was, what were we going to do? And through that process, rather than having a literal description of depiction of the violence, which also like pretty much nothing was too literal in that show. Uh, the, the language of violence and the language of the magic in the play were all gestural language, um, which is pretty heavy in, um, in that show. Um, so, and there's like a whole dance scene in that show. Like there's so, there was so much movement in our version of that play as well. But, uh, what we did was rather than having the victim of the violence, having it being literally depicted, we had her 
walk away. There's this line where she says, guys, what's going on? Something like that. Um, and she, in a stylized movement, left where the violence was occurring while everyone else was still kind of pantomiming it to this person that wasn't there anymore. And, you know, there's like a lifting of a hanger um, that happened instead of showing literally what was happening to that person. And I thought that that was like, I was very proud of what we did in terms of keeping our actors safe, depicting the truth of what this story moment was right. Um, And also doing it in a way that like allowed people to experience it as they needed to, because I'm like, we get it. We don't need to see. I personally don't need to see the blood and the guts. Right. I understand what that moment was. And it was more about the impact of that moment on the magic of the play anyway. So yeah, I was like very proud of the way that my team and I, all of us, right. Contributed to building that moment together. And, um, yeah, it, it was, it was very collaborative. Thank you for sharing. I can almost, you paint such a clear picture. I'm envisioning it in, in, in my head. And I just, I'm feeling like overwhelming compassion and gratitude for you in, in this moment. Cause you're distilling things so clearly in a practical way. That is just, I am, my ears and brain and heart are very receptive to it in this moment. <laughs> um, Let's pivot and talk Shakespeare. Let's talk Henry the Fourth, parts one and two, Seattle Shakespeare. Uh, uh, tell me the origin story of your trans prince in this production. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so it was um, part of the Drum and Colors program at Seattle Shakespeare Company, which was created by Lamar Legend. Um, and essentially it is a production every single season that is all BIPOC design team, actors, everybody. And so like that, number one, fucking awesome. I'm like, yes, let's do it. And the way that I see Shakespeare, like I, when I was younger, I didn't think, I had no interest in Shakespeare. I was like, why do we give a fuck what this old dude is saying? It feels intellectually elite, right? There's so much gatekeeping around Shakespeare. You're doing it right, you're doing it wrong you know, like feeling like I wasn't smart enough to understand Shakespeare, right? All of that stuff. Um, And it's all a lie, right? It's all a lie. And like Shakespeare is like dick jokes, cross-dressing, like it is, (laughs) you know what I mean? I'm like, it's brilliant. I love it. There's so much beauty. And also like, come on, let's take it off the pedestal because I think that that's actually what serves the work the most as dusting it off. Because if we don't bring it to modern audiences, people aren't going to care. Um, and it's going to die. Right. So for me, right. As I was directing, I got the opportunity to direct these shows. Um, I was like, okay, number one, how am I clarifying this piece of English history, right. That folks over there know, right. They know their history and they're familiar with these stories, but we don't, we don't know what happened in Richard at the end of Richard the second and why, you know, like Henry the fourth was, starting his reign with civil war like we don't fucking know that right so trying to figure out uh cool like how can i make this history play which in the words of kate wisniewski a political war play uh such a sexier way of looking at it um you know how do we make this clear for the audience uh because it's really important to me to make shakespeare where people understand what is happening right and there's so many ways to do that and in large part you know, gesture language 
can be used for that. And also too, right? So my directing mentor is Rosa Josie, one of the founders of Upstart Crow Collective. We worked together on King John last summer. Um, the founders are Kate Wisniewski, Betsy Schwartz, and Rosa Josie. And Rosa always works with a choreographer named Alice Ghosty because uh, physical metaphor is just so much part of her style. And, and really, so I learned so much from watching her direct Shakespeare. Um, and also with my own movement background, being a dancer, I was like, okay, great. We are going to, you know, fuck it up with movement and choreography. Um, I don't know if you can hear there's a, there's a, a saw in the background. I hope that's not too distracting. I can't um, hear it at all, but it ups the stakes of what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like, whoa, whoa. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so uh, there was a lot of gestural language in this production as well. And for me, as a gender nonconforming theater artist, I'm like, why am I telling this story? What's, what is provocative about it for me? Um, and so uh, our Prince Hal, who is played by Reese Daly, a brilliant young trans actor, you know, for me, it was important to see a trans person in this heroic arc, right? Um, and I was really interested in exploring, like, we see how you know, navigating obligation to the core, obligation to his father, obligation to upholding, right, decorum, legacy, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then also just wanting to like be a man in the tavern and like hang out, you know, um, with Falstaff and all the prostitutes. And, you know, I was like, yeah, what does it mean for a trans person to be that that's the safe place where he can be himself and be in a queer club and be amongst people that make him feel seen for who he is, right? And having to let go of that for this greater obligation to perform, right, whatever is expected, which I think, you know, obviously trans people and gender nonconforming people, we're faced with the problem of performance all the time mm. and obligation and like what we choose to when we choose to be ourselves or not when it's safe or not and so that was something for me that uh in terms of the end of the story when Hal says goodbye to Falstaff and that whole world right I'm like it, it's so the speech is so cold in terms of like I don't know you anymore old man right all this stuff that it, it can be it is cold the text is cruel but I, it was important to me for us to understand what a sacrifice it really was and how painful, right? Even if you're making the decision, like I'm going to step into my kingly role or whatever and rule this country, um, that it there's a really huge cost. And so, yeah, for me, I was really interested in exploring what it would mean for a young trans prince to be the king of England, you know, and have a heroic journey, I want to live in that world. Yeah. I want to go to there. You were talking, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you envisioned and, and executed the combat scenes. Can you talk about that? Uh, so we had a fight choreographer, blah, 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 a fight choreographer, Rachel Yeno, who was freaking awesome. And also a choreographer, Stefan Richmond. And so uh, they would sometimes like work together to combine the fight choreo and the gestural heightened gestural language. But yeah, it was really important to me, right. That we're using our bodies as much as we can to really clarify 
allegiances, right? When things are changing, power dynamics, power struggles, right? All of that, um, because it's complicated, right? Like we don't know who's on whose side. And like one of like something about this show that I loved so much was that uh, I I was like, we need shadow work in it. So mm-hmm. the prologue actually before the first scene was a shadow play where we saw Northumberland and uh, what's his face? I can't remember, but they were essentially taking the crown from Richard II and placing it on the head of Henry Bolingbroke. And uh, Stefan Dorsey was our uh, composer. So he composed original music for these moments and it was so sick, but you know, it was like, I, I wanted that was my biggest goal. I was like, there's so many, right. I'm a director. I could be seduced by the cool lights and the, the, you know, whatever, right. The unnecessary frills, but something that I learned from Rosa Josie, right. Is that simplicity and storytelling, like simplicity in the storytelling, right. Making it clear is actually enough and that we don't need to be seduced by like the fancy lights and the projections and la la la. And so, uh, yeah, I was like, okay, my number one goal is for people who have never seen Shakespeare to understand what is going on, right? Because I really think that it is the responsibility of the production to be clear, right? And yeah, with the political warplay, it's complicated, right? Because it's not just it's not just the Civil War, right? It's also it's not just that. It's also like where, how is the church involved, right? There's like all of these different layers of power. Um, and so using, you know, using gestural language to really clarify different factions or like whatever, we had a lot of fun. At least I did. <laughs> Look, I hope everybody else did too. But um, yeah, Stefan and I would just like get on these roles where we're talking about the dramaturgy and the history and like how we were going to build the world. And I think that it really worked because like, yeah, it's all coming from the text. It always has to come from the text, but in my opinion, but it doesn't mean that we can't create something new and exciting and modern, right. That feels close to us. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I had a grand old time. (laughs) Absolutely incredible. It's been very joyous to see your career from afar on Facebook and Instagram. Let's (laughs) keep going on this through line of Shakespeare in your directorial portfolio. Um, Excuse me, assistant directing King John at OSF. (laughs) Tell me things. I love, I love that for you. I love seeing you in production teams that have that greater reach on a regional level. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) Um, It was awesome. I mean, working with Upstart Code Collective is amazing. Rosa, Betsy, and Kate, they are brilliant. They are brilliant, brilliant, strong women, brilliant leaders, brilliant performers and artists. Um, And I I mean, it was amazing for me. I was like, okay, by that point, I knew that I had the Henry IV gig the following spring. And I was like, excellent. I will watch Rosa direct a history play at OSF and have you know, these world-class performers, right? That I get to watch and also learn from, right? By observation and brilliant, you know, brilliant designers, brilliant support. Like I, I had an incredible experience working at OSF and that was a really beautiful time, a, a beautiful summer. I learned so much. 
And yeah, I think like what I think is so amazing about Upstart Crow is that, you know, just inherently from being all female and non-binary Shakespeare, we are breaking, they are breaking the mold in so many ways um, and allowing us to see the world in ways that it could be in ways that it should be. And uh, also too, it's just like, you know, I, and I mean this with all of the compassion in my heart, right? It is incredible to work in a room where there are, you know, maybe there's one cis man, one trusted cis man, right? On the production. It means it's, it's so impactful to be in the upstart curl room because you get to work on this classical text, which it's all a fucking boys club so often, right? Where there's like one female role, two female roles. And it's all of these brilliant, brilliant women in the room who are just so good, right? And deserve to play these roles, these iconic male roles. I'm like, Kate Wisniewski was born to play King John. She was terrifying and funny and and like there was everything, right? Um, Jessica Williams was an incredible bastard. Like there were so many, it, it just, it needs to be done. It needs to be done everywhere. There are so many staggeringly talented women, femmes, gender non-conforming actors in this country. And I'm like, why are we doing it this boring traditional way? Right. Um, and I think that people are moving, moving towards that. Right. I like to think, right. That the trend is moving towards inclusion when it comes to classical work, but yeah, so that was the environment was incredible. Everyone on the team, right. Is excellent at what they do. And then also too, as a, as a, um, a younger director, right. I just got to watch Rosa work and her attention to detail, her, the way she and Alice work together in terms of coming from the text and using physical metaphor in the show, right? Like the way that she worked with actors, just um, getting to work with someone who is so seasoned, brilliant, kind, funny, sharp as a tack, you know, it was, um, it was like, a, a boot camp in directing in a lot of ways. And she, she used me, that's for sure. Like, you know, I've, I've definitely experienced assistant directing where, uh, you know, like nobody really is asking for your opinion, right. You're just there to observe and you're quiet. Um, and Rosa really brought me in. I mean, I was in meetings with her and Alice observing, taking notes, being part of the process nine months before the contract started you know? Um, so it was a huge gift in terms of how do we break down these old texts? Like what is necessary? What is not? How, how are we? Yeah. Just like doing all of that analysis and how does it then translate to art in people's bodies? Uh, Alice is an incredible choreographer, architect of experiences, works with Rosa a lot on pretty much every single upstart crochet, I believe. And the way, right, that they're able to, or she's able to work with uh, actors, right, who maybe, who are all, right, we're all movers, but not necessarily dancers, and work within people's abilities uh, and telling the story in a way that, like, functions in everyone's body sustainably, while also, you know, creating these beautiful poetic images. Like, really, I could... I could sing their praises all day, um, but working with Upstart Crow is phenomenal. And I hope to see their work nationally, everywhere, everywhere. Hire them, y'all, and hire me. <laughs> I hire you. That is a great 
segue <laughs> into what's next, what putting into the universe things that you want to be doing as an actor and a director. Yeah. What's what do you envision coming next and and let's put it out into the universe? Yeah, thank you. I'm hungry. I'm hungry <laughs> to act. I'm hungry. Um, I've done some directing the last few years and that has been beautiful. I really enjoy the challenge, the creative challenge of artistic leadership and telling stories. And also like Wolf Play was the first show that I'd acted in in a while. And it just reminded me how much it fuels my soul. I love it so much. Um, so I'm hoping for lots of acting gigs. I'm based in Seattle, but I want to work all over the country. I'm hoping for that life, you know? And also like, I'm just excited. I feel like I'm finally in this place where I'm, I'm comfortable really sharing who I am mm -hmm. in a way that is vulnerable, right? And authentic to me. Um, and it's really, I feel like I'm ready to take on the world, right? In this way that I didn't before in terms of knowing my artistic capabilities and feeling confident in them and also being able to move through, right? The competitive nature of our field, right? There's competition, there's scarcity. I think it's, it is easy to get wrapped up in that, but I am no longer moving from this place where I, where that is my worth, right? That my worth only comes from my next contract. And that feels so powerful to be able to make art from a place that is grounded in self-love in this way I've never felt before. So like whatever I'm working on, you know, whatever role I am in, like, I just want to make art with good people and make art that imagines the world as it could be, right? Because that's, I'm like, let's make the world we want to live in on stage. Let's do it. Right. I just, yeah, I just, I just want to act. I also want to direct. Um, but I do, I do love acting. I love acting and I'm good at it, you know, but yeah, I like, I feel like there's so much for me and it feels beautiful to, to feel that way. Um, you know, what's for me is for me. And I'm just excited to, to finally like really know who I am and, and move through our industry with that, because it's been a journey. It's been a big journey. Well, our podcast journey ends here. <laughs> Thank you for sharing so much of yourself. We'll make sure to have your contact info in the episode description. So folks okay. can reach out. This has been incredible. Thank you so much, Franco, for being Thank a guest. You. It was wonderful to catch up and see this amazing evolution of you as a theater artist and we're sharing it with the world yeah thank you um really really wonderful to to talk to you and see you again I'm I can't wait to offline and like be friends you know yeah. <laughs> we're friends in real life too yeah <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. 
If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.